If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. And I want to preach a message entitled, How Christianity Should Look in the Church. How Christianity Should Look in the Church. Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to start reading at verse 2, and read down through to verse 7. The Bible says this, I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Syntyche, to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side for the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Today I want to look at this passage and we're going to see four different things that we as a body of believers and as a church must put into practice if we're to be an effective witness out in the world. You see, it's one thing for us to put on a particular uh, front, and I trust that it's not a front. We want to be genuine. We need to be genuine. But there are times in our lives where all of a sudden there are things that happens within the church, things that happen within the church, and maybe it is strife, maybe it's, you know, you don't get along with somebody, maybe somebody annoyed you, they did something against you, and now all of a sudden there's, there's trouble in the church. But you get out into the world and you know you got to be a witness, and you put on the happy face, and, you know, you get your Bible underneath your arm, and, and you, you know, you proclaim the Word of God, and you proclaim the love of God, but somehow in the church, things are still amiss. I want to contend today that you can't effectively be a witness for the Lord unless we are learning how it is that we are to be with one another in the church. That, I say in a world today, that's a tall order because we all come from different backgrounds, we all come from different places, but really, is that supposed to be, and is, should it have created the kind of differences that we now see in our society? I don't think so. I think that in the church, the church should be the model for the way the rest of the world and the rest of the country ought to be. 
the church should be the model of how our society ought to be. And that means we have got to work to get it together within the church. Say, Pastor, do you know something that's going on here that we we ought to know about? No, I don't. I'm just preaching the word today. And I want us to see what the Word of God has to say, some things that are very important. And there was something that was going on in the Philippian church. In fact, if you read through the book of Philippians and you get right up to chapter, chapter 4, you will find that this is really one of the very first problems that Paul is having to address within the church. This church was, was phenomenal. They, were, they, were, they had it together in many ways, so many ways. They were, you know, unlike the Corinthian church. The Corinthians were just, I I don't know, you know, it took all the grace of God to really get with the Corinthians and, and really try to help them. But the Philippian church was a powerful church. It was a church that had helped Paul. It was a church that was stood behind him in many ways, supported him when other churches did not in his missionary efforts. But there was still a problem. And the problem boils down to this, and we know that it was different. Uh, we know that it was, a, it, it was a difficult problem, and it was one that was seemingly exploding. And it was two people somehow had a dispute. We don't know what the dispute was, but the lesson that we're going to learn from this, the first thing that we're going to learn is that within the church we have to learn how to resolve our differences. Now, I'm not expecting that all of you will like Italian food as much as I do. In fact, I think I've even said on occasion, I should have been born Italian. Next best thing, I married one. And I, you know, I just, you you put me in an Italian restaurant and I will never want to leave. I mean, I just, I want to live there. My wife and I for uh, a few years, or actually for a few months, I was filling in at an Italian church in Boston, right downtown Boston. And, and uh, you know, I mean, they were, this was Italian to the point where uh, their first service was in, in Italian. And I really had to brush up on mine. No, I didn't, I didn't speak Italian. So, I, you know, somebody else had to conduct that service. I didn't speak Italian, but I, I filled in the English-speaking service for a number of months. And my wife would travel up with me from school, as well as another young man from Zion, and we would go minister in the church. And they had a Sunday night meeting, and we'd stay in the afternoon and be fed by the people in the church. And just, you know, Sunday night service was really hard because I was so full. I I mean, you know, it was just, it was wonderful. I'm not talking about how it is that we have differences in our likes and dislikes of food or our likes and dislikes of sports teams or you don't like sports at all or, you know, things like that. Computers, you might be into them, you might hate them. All kinds of stuff like that. There are things that we are different on and that has nothing to do with it. But it seems as though there was a dispute, some kind of personality conflict that got in the way, and it was so bad that Paul had to write. Now remember, Paul put this in a letter. Do we remember what these letters were intended for? They were intended for public reading in the church. 
all of a sudden, let me pick on South Side and West Side here for a minute. Let's just, let's just, let's just think for a minute. Just imagine for a minute that South Side and West Side all of a sudden have a fight. And they're not getting along. If you don't know who I'm referring to, Candace represents the? And Nancy represents the? West Side. Okay. I don't know why we, I don't know where that came from, but anyway, it, it stuck somewhere along the way. But anyway, they had a fight. They're into it. They don't like each other. All of a sudden, now they're not sitting in the same pew anymore. You see Nancy, you know, sitting back, back there. All of a sudden, she, she's, you know, taking Patricia's pew, and Patricia's getting upset about that, but, you know, it's a whole other thing. And, and Candace is moving on back there, and on the other side, you know, all of a sudden you begin to think, what's going on? Problem. And then come to find out there's some kind of conflict. But you see, the problem with this conflict is this particular conflict, though that one might not be quite so bad, maybe it was a falling out over something else in life, but really had nothing to do with things in the church. It seems that this thing, it, it threatened to drive a wedge in this body. And Paul had to immediately jump on this thing. Once he learned about it, immediately had to step in and ask somebody to intervene. Because it's also apparent that they were unable to reach some kind of a resolution themselves. Because in verse 2, Paul, or verse 3, Paul is saying, listen, I, fellow, yoke fellow, whoever he was, you know, we don't know who this person was. Please intervene in this situation and help them to resolve the problem. It's so bad, Paul makes it public. How does he do that? By a letter being written to the church, and the letter is intended to be read before all. You can imagine these two people. I'm not even going to try to pronounce their names again. You can imagine these two people sitting there in a congregation, and they're sitting there fuming about the problem they have in the church. It wasn't doctrinal. doesn't seem to be, because Paul would have addressed that issue and the doctrine earlier in the epistle. It seems to be something else that threatened this church and threatened to split it and divide it, but nonetheless, you can imagine how they feel. All of a sudden, they hear their names out publicly. Oops, we're in trouble. Yeah. You know what, brothers and sisters? We cannot allow the enemy to get any kind of foothold in our lives that will drive a wedge in this body. You see, any amount of disunity is a church split. I used to think that church splits were when one side got so mad they left the church. Now, do you know that it's possible for this church to split and stay together? And that probably is worse than a whole group getting up and leaving. No, we want to stay together, but we want to be together in unity. The Bible tells us and lets us know that we need to strive for unity in the body of Christ. And we cannot allow things that people do and people say in the church to so get us to the point where we are bitter and we are angry and, and we come to the place of saying, well, you know what, maybe this ain't the place for me and maybe I just need to take a few people with me. You see, somebody once wisely told me, if you can't help a place, don't hurt a place. You can't help it, don't you hurt it. 
Because as soon as you reach your hand out to hurt that place, you are, you are, you are in rebellion at that point. And so Paul sees something that is so dangerous here in the church in verse 2. The Bible says this, I plead with you to agree with one another in the Lord. So whatever the conflict was, we don't really know what it was. Somehow he's saying, listen, let's get God into this thing and let's realize that there is more at stake than whether or not you're right or you're right. And a lot of times this is where marriages go afoul, afoul very, very fast. I'm right, no, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. And you know what? There's this constant bickering and, and fighting back and forth and somebody just wants to win. And in the end, nobody wins. Isn't anybody winning? The only one that's winning is the devil. Paul is saying, I, I, I plead with you. Twice he says, I plead. Before each of those individuals' names, I plead, I plead, agree with each other in the Lord. Now, it wasn't a small thing that they were fighting over. It wasn't doctrine, and it doesn't seem to be a moral issue either. But it was bad enough that it threatened the life of the Philippian church. And brothers and sisters, when it all comes down to it, what speaks volumes to the world is when you and I, as brothers and sisters in Christ, are dwelling and living together in unity. In unity. A lot of times we get all hung up on, you know, I don't like how that, you know, that person looked at me funny and... It's like we, we're, we revert to third grade again, you know? No, second, that's more second grade stuff. Third grade, they're getting a little older, a little mature. I know we just got a third grader now and go headed into fourth. It's a little bit def, different. And, but, you know, going back, it's a little, you know, we get, we get all hung up on those things. And, you know, brothers and sisters, what God has called us to do is to put away all that stuff and say, Lord, we want to serve you. We want to give our best to you. We want to honor you with our lives. And that means that we have got to, in the body of Christ, dwell together in unity. So we've got to learn to resolve our differences. Paul has to appeal to someone in leadership in the church to sort of step in and help correct the issue and, and somehow create a, an atmosphere of, of reconciliation. And a lot of times in the body of Christ, we, you know, we get into the situations where we, we think we've got to win. It's not about winning. When you are trying to win, you're going to lose. It's a biblical principle. If you want to really win, then learn how to step back. Learn how to be humble. It is the humble who God will advance, not the prideful, not the ones who are always sticking out their necks saying, hey, look at me, look at me. Hey, I'm, I'm better than, I'm, I'm bigger than, and, and, you know, it's going to be my way or no way. No, no, no. It's got to be that you and I step back in humility and say, Lord, help us. Help us to resolve our differences. Don't let me do anything that damages my witness for the, for the body of Christ. And you know what the amazing thing is, is listen to what Paul says about these two individuals. These were not bad people. In fact, these were individuals who had, as Paul put it, let me read it, contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Now, it's interesting that, Paul would use this word, the idea of contending, 
Because he said at one point they were contending at my side in the cause of preaching the gospel and reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But now they're contending not for the gospel, but to win against each other. Now they're contending with each other. And you know what, brothers and sisters, when we begin to do that, here's what happens. It takes our eyes off what God has called us to do as a body of believers, as individuals in the body of Christ. It takes our eyes off what our purpose is for God laying His hand upon your life and saving you out of sin. He didn't just save you out of sin to get you into heaven. He saved you out of sin so that then you could go and tell somebody else about it and and contend for the gospel. They contended at my side for the cause of the gospel. But please, you've got to help them resolve this thing quickly. And you know what, Paul, you, Paul, could, he, he, Paul could actually, at different points in his epistles, he could come off strong, and this is not one of those times. Paul comes off very compassionate, very loving. He pleads with them. You know, somebody's having differences. You can plead with them, and all of a sudden, they, they're, not, you know, they're not obeying. Your pleading comes to an end. And you're just like, stop already. Paul pleads with them. Paul is very compassionate. He's very loving, but he is challenging these two women. You have got to resolve this thing. You have got to do this. Why? Because there is more at stake for, with your your. You, whatever it is, your differences, and however it is that you're going through this, this you know, thing of trying to beat each other, trying to win, whatever it might be, there is so much at stake, not only in the church, but also outside of the church. Great deal at stake. So Paul pleads with them, and Paul asks, please, you have got to do something. And, and he pulls in a third party. You know, this is one of the ways we deal with our problems today so much differently. We really want to be a New Testament church. You know, I'm not suggesting I write a letter and just list everybody who's having trouble with each other. That's probably not totally wise. But, you know, this was one of those things where if it gets bad enough that it is going to create an, a, a wedge and drive a wedge in the local assembly to the point where people say, well, I'm done here, and come on, I'm going to go get a bunch of other people, then you know what? We would make it public. It absolutely would. But we don't have anything to fear here today. But we do have to pay attention to what Solomon said was the little foxes that come in and spoil the vine. The little things that can get in, the little annoyances here and there that creates a little bit of separation between us. You know, brothers and sisters, God has to, has to help each and every one of us not to allow anything to get in the way of us as a body dwelling together in unity. So we've got to learn to resolve our differences. There's something else that we've got to do. And how, the, how Christianity should look within the church is this. Verse 4, we've got to rejoice in God. Resolve our differences and rejoice in God. Listen to what the Bible says. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. 
Rejoicing is essentially the theme, one of the themes throughout this book. Joy, rejoicing. And Paul says it here, that word rejoice really means to be full of cheer. That is calmly happy or well off. Well off. We usually associate well off with money. No, 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 that's, that's not what it has to do with. He says rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. We often miss, dismiss Paul's statement in our minds as being impossible. How can I rejoice in the Lord always when today I woke up, I found that I, I forgot to pay my rent, my landlord's at the door, I forgot to pay my electric bill, and now they're sending me a final notice. I forgot all of these things, and things are bad, and life is a problem, and they've cut my hours at work. How in the world am I supposed to rejoice? Well, the Bible doesn't say here rejoice in your troubles. Rejoice in the Lord. God didn't change. Though your situation might have changed, though your problems might have compounded a little bit, and though your difficulties might be greater today, God did not change. Therefore, you can rejoice in the Lord. If there is anything you can say is, God, I thank you that you didn't change even though my work situation changed. I thank you, Lord, that you're on the throne and that I can trust in you even though there is nothing around me on a human level that can be trusted. Nothing. You don't know. You don't know what tomorrow holds. Those of you who have made it through this whole economic situation and and we're, we're still not over it by the way we're not through it yet and you've somehow been able to make it through without losing a job or having hours cut yes you need to be thankful but listen you still have to rejoice in the Lord because you don't know what could change tomorrow None of us know what could change tomorrow on a human level. Because in humanity, I know we all love to think better of humanity than, you know, and this is, this is some, one of the common philosophies of the day, that we're all basically good and we're all generally good. The Bible says it's none good, not even one. Who we've got to really trust is we've really got to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. And that's how we are able to rejoice. Paul says rejoice in the Lord, not in your circumstances, not in what you're going through, not in the trouble that you have in your life today. You need to learn to rejoice in the Lord. When we come into the presence of the Lord and we come in and we have a time of worship like we did today, it's not about rejoicing in the fact that you walked in and whew, made it through the week with no troubles. That's not what this is about. It is saying, Lord, you're always worthy of my praise. You're always worthy to receive glory and honor. So today, Lord, I am going to rejoice in you, not in my circumstance. You can rejoice. And this is how we are able to rejoice in the midst of our circumstances because we're looking at somebody who rules over it all. And he rules over everything that we go through and everything that we deal with. God sees the end from the beginning. There is a third lesson that we have to learn. Not only about rejoicing and rejoice in the Lord, but also the third lesson is this, that we've got to respect each other. See, two of these things, they, they go on a, they're on a human level, 
One of them is on a spiritual level. This is back to humanity. Look at verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Our gentleness should be shown to everyone. You know, it's easy for us to be gentle to a few people. To just a select few. Especially to those who treat us in the same way. But what about those who are not so gentle? What about those who sort of come off tough and strong and all of that? The Bible says, let your gentleness be evident to a few. Oh, no, no, no. Let your gentleness be evident to all. You see, we've got to get this idea out of our heads that gentleness and meekness are weakness. It's not. It's strength. What does the Bible say? The Bible says in Proverbs, a gentle answer turns away wrath. You ever have somebody just absolutely, you know, they're in your face and just letting you have it? What do you really want to do? What the flesh says, I'm just going to let them have it. But the Spirit says, gentleness and self-control. Two of the fruits of the Spirit. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Remember, and this, you know, if, and, and the world has even learned this. The world has taken this and even applied it in a business setting. Because I remember in uh, working in customer service a few years ago, getting phone calls, and there, there is no phone call more desperate than somebody whose water has just shut off in the middle of their shower. And I worked for the water company. And the water has shut off, and, you know, somehow they managed to get the soap out of their hair and, you know, all of that, and they're in the midst of a shower. And on the other end, I mean, I no, I no longer said, you know, good afternoon, whatever the company was that I was working for, you know, how may I help you? And I'm hearing, my water, my water, my water, there's no water. And they're going crazy on the other end. Now I could jump through the phone and just say, well, I didn't do it, do it. I didn't have anything to do with that. Well, what is that going to resolve? So the world says, from a customer service standpoint, a gentle answer does, in fact, turn away wrath. If somehow you can help the customer to calm down, one of the ways of doing that is simply to not get to their level. And you know what, brothers and sisters within the body of Christ, this even sort of harkens back to verse, verses 2 and 3 where maybe the levels of these two ladies had gone to a point where, you know, they're really at it with each other. And, and so Paul is saying, let your gentleness be evident to all. In other words, don't take it to the level that somebody else is taking it to. Maybe they're taking it and they're, just, they're mad at you and they're going to be nasty to you and they're going to be angry at you and they're just going to be up here. If you go up here too, who knows what's going to happen next? Stay down. Keep it down. 
Keep the level down. Be gentle. Let your gentleness be evident to all. And you know what, brothers and sisters? There is no greater witness than being gentle in the face of trouble, in the face of anger, in the face of the bitterness of life. There is no greater witness because in the end, the Bible lets us know that Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter and he did not open his mouth. So we're just trying to be like Jesus when we're gentle. The Bible says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Why? Well, the Lord is near. What does that mean? Well, some people take it to mean that the Lord is close to coming back. Others take it to mean that he is, uh, because he is everywhere present, he is omnipresent, that he is always near. So, you know, it's kind of like, just, just watch how you, how you live. Watch how you do things. Watch how you speak, how you talk, how you act, how you think, all of that. Either way, that is a challenge to us. Whether it is that it is he's coming back and we know that we're closer now than we've ever been. And that, heart, that also goes with the context of Philippians. But also in the end, we've got to understand that our gentleness, in our gentleness, we are allowing the Holy Spirit to move through us and work through us because gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. And so the Lord is near in that situation. In other words, he's going to help you to do the very thing that goes against your flesh. And isn't that what the Holy Spirit has come to help us to do? He has come to help us to do the very things that look like Jesus and to push away the very things that look like us. He didn't want us to look like us anymore. He wants us to look like Jesus. So we've got to respect one another. There's one final thing that we've got to do, and it is this. We have to run to God. We have to learn how to run to Him. You know, that's really what it all boils down to on Tuesday nights. Tuesday night prayer meeting for us is nothing more than us saying, Lord, we're running to you. We're going to run to you with all of our hearts. When we come into this place to call upon the name of the Lord, we're saying, Lord, we are running to you right now. If there is anything as a body of believers that we need to learn how to do and constantly be reminded that this is what we must do as a body of believers, it is this, that we've got to run to the Lord. Not only on a Tuesday night. Don't wait for Tuesday night, by the way. And, and you know, you get it into Wednesday and you're thinking, man, Tuesday night's a long way coming now. What am I going to do? You can run to God wherever you are. You don't have to wait for Sunday service. You don't have to wait for Tuesday night prayer meeting. You can learn to run to the Lord yourself. Let's read it, verses uh, 6 and 7. The Bible says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do not be anxious about anything. The American Standard Bible says this, be anxious for nothing. Just curious, how many of you, don't raise your hand, but answer it in your heart. How many of you are really anxious about something today? There's anxiety in your heart. 
Something that you're concerned about. Paul was telling them whatever we get worked up over and worried about can be a hindrance in prayer. Because in the end, when you sit there and you worry but don't pray, then nothing is being accomplished. If you're anxious about something and the anxiety is what you're putting into practice and putting into action, nothing is going to get done. And what Paul is striving for us to see here is that we will learn how to run to the Lord. Look, if you've got trouble, if you've got worries, if you've got anxiety today, run to the Lord with it. Bring it to Him. Bring all of those difficulties, all of those troubles to the Lord. Anxiety can often control how we think. This is why Paul addresses that in verse 8. What it is that we're thinking. What it is that we're going... Well, in fact, let's just... Shall we read it? Verse 8, the Bible says this. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. What's going through your mind? What's, what are you thinking about? What's, what are you dwelling on constantly? What is constantly going through your mind it will potentially create anxiety or it will potentially create a situation where you are aware of His presence and aware that God is near you and will help you. But if it's anxiety, it can create a hindrance to prayer. Paul says don't be anxious for anything. Here's the the habit that we have to get into. Listen to what the Bible says. In everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, uh, present your requests to God. Is Paul really suggesting that prayer is our answer to everything that we face? Without a doubt. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, I realize the world will come along and try to present its own ideas of what it is they think you ought to do. But in the end, what, what Paul is saying in everything the Bible says, everything, by prayer, and petition, that is asking God, with thanksgiving, don't forget the thankfulness, present your request to God. Say, Lord, here's what's going on. Now, God knows what's going on, but He wants you to go through that exercise of coming to Him, laying it out before Him, and praying to Him and saying, God, you've got to do something different here. You've got to change the situation. Present your request. Well, when? When are we to do this? In everything. Before important decisions, in sickness, in health, before minor decisions, present your request to the Lord. When things are good, when they aren't, in other words, make it your lifestyle to pray in everything. Don't let there be anything that will escape your time of prayer. Well, how? The Bible says by prayer and petitions, both public and private. Not only Tuesday nights. I trust that Tuesday nights are not the only nights that you're praying for those requests that you write out so faithfully. Pray for it on a regular basis. Bring it before the Lord on a regular basis. Say, Lord, I'm going to come to you in my private time of prayer. It also involves worship. Petitions indicates that we are asking things of God and on behalf of maybe somebody else. Paul puts this in here. I love how he does it with thanksgiving. In other words, don't forget to be thankful. 
whatever you're praying for, whatever you're anxious about, whatever is going on in your life, however difficult things might be, do not forget to be thankful. Say, I don't feel like I got much to be thankful for. Oh, yes, you do. You see, the one thing, uh, as I read through the Scripture, have been reading through the Scripture, the one thing, the one miracle, the one event that God always points the people of Israel back to, that they are to look back on and say, this is why God is, is our God, is this. I brought you out of Egypt through the Red Sea and into a new land. Now, for us in the New Testament age, and that is a type of what Jesus has done for us in bringing us out of sin. And the one thing that we as Christians and believers should always be thankful for, in spite of what we're going through, in spite of what, what is happening in our lives, maybe you're believing God for a miracle, for this thing or that thing, but the one thing that you must always be thankful for is He brought you out of sin and He gave you a new hope and gave you everlasting life. That's it. If you can't find anything else in your life to be thankful for, you thank Him for the salvation that He paid for you to receive. So why are we to pray like this? Why are we to do this? Why are we to run to God? We need to present our requests to the Lord. The Bible says, lets us know, make your requests known to God. Why? God knows exactly what it is that I'm going through, right? Yes, He does. But when we do this, we're showing our dependence on Him for an answer. Saying, Lord, we don't, we don't have the strength and the ability. I close with this story. Uh, there, there is a writer, a Christian writer from many years ago called Oswald Chambers. But Mrs. Oswald Chambers once said of her husband, she said, like all teachers of forceful personality, he constantly had people longing to pour out their intimate troubles to him. She said, I remember at the close of one meeting, a woman came up to him with the words, oh, Mr. Chambers, I feel I must tell you ab about myself. As he led her away to a quiet corner, she said, I resigned myself for the long wait. But he was back again in a few minutes. As we went home, I remarked on the speed with which he had managed to free himself. And he replied, I just asked her if she had ever told God about herself. When she said she hadn't, I advised her to go home and pour out before him as honestly as she could all her troubles, then see if she still needed or wanted to relate them to me. You know, in the end, brothers and sisters, I, I realize sometimes pastors become sounding boards. I'm not against that. But you know what? i got to agree with this. I believe this is so important. A lot of times we are so quick to tell other people, whether it's me as the pastor or somebody else in the congregation, a close friend, we are so quick to just lean on that person. But you know what? In the end, what we've got to learn to do is we've got to learn to run to the Lord. And we've got to learn to give it all over to Him and say, Lord, I'm coming to You with my difficulty. I'm pouring out my heart before You. And God, I'm gonna, I, I need You today as never before. And I wonder if we did that more, if we would really need to lean on the arm of flesh quite so much. If we just came to the Lord and said, Lord, I'm going to pour it out before You. 
There is a blessing to doing this, by the way. The blessing is seen in the last part of verse 7. Actually, in verse 7, the Bible says, and the peace of God. It transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but if there is anything that we need in the world that we live in, this fast-paced kind of world, we need the peace of God. Because the peace of God transcends understanding. You see, it always takes you further than what you can figure out. You might not know why you're at such peace when things are in such turmoil around you. You don't know why it is that somehow in the midst of trouble, you are able to sit in peace before the Lord. And in your life, you've got peace. And maybe there are people around you who look at you and say, man, you've got troubles. And yet you're at peace. Why? Because you've learned to take those things to the Lord and say, God, I need you today and I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to pour my heart out to you and I'm going to leave it at your feet. When we come to him and we pray and we call upon him, you say, does prayer have to be fancy? Not not, Not at all. Prayer is simply talking to God as you would a friend because isn't he your greatest friend? So take it to him and leave it at his feet so that the peace of God that transcends understanding. See, understanding, logic can only take you so far. Only take you so far. I can't figure it out. The King James says it's the peace of God that passes all understanding. Somebody once illustrated it this way. You have peace in a car over here, and you have understanding in a car over here. And understanding just, you know, hit pedal to the metal. I mean, just to the floor, and it's going as fast as it wants because it's figuring everything out along the way. And peace is just kind of putting along, and all of a sudden, understanding comes up to a trouble that comes up on in the front of the road and, and, and is there, and, and understanding all of a sudden, it hits the brakes, and it sits there and stares at the problem and says, I can't figure this out. This isn't supposed to happen. I don't understand this. I really don't understand why this is happening. Gets out of the car and looks at it and somehow is just just trying to figure out what the problem is. And all of a sudden, here comes peace. Putting along and sees the problem. Looks at the problem and says, I don't have to understand it. I've got the Lord on my side and just passes out around the problem. It is the peace that passes all understanding. Brothers and sisters, I got to tell you today that whatever it is that you might be going through, don't stand there and try to figure out what can happen, but simply say, Lord, I'm going to run to you so that your peace can flood my soul and that God, I can go out around understanding and get past it and say, I'm going to rest in your hands today. Let's stand to our feet right now and let's give God praise.